We need more chairs for Dharma talk evenings as this retreat moves along. The title of this evening's uh, talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And beginning with uh, some words from the Buddha. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, uh, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. And so this evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation that we've been exploring a little bit in this retreat classically called a Brahma-vihara, as Booker mentioned this afternoon, or a little while ago. And one uh, translation of of Brahma-vihara that I particularly like is divine abiding. A divine abiding. And in this case, we're exploring the radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness, unconditional loving-friendliness, unconditional acceptance, an experience of a really open-hearted connection, and a connection that isn't fraught with clinging, uh, not fraught with attachment, and not even necessarily with any sense of connection, or excuse me, obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and of heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layers of conditioning that shuts us down to others and also sometimes shuts us down to ourselves. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when our focus of concentration uh, and mindful attention is able to begin to penetrate the layers of conditioning that keep us from connecting from others, as I've mentioned, and our own bodily and mental experiences with a kind of kindness and clarity. So I'd like to begin with an old story. Actually, much of this talk this evening is uh, various stories. So beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular uh, seeming very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. And it was a forest that was adjacent to uh, a village of very strong supporters who, in fact, offered to build 500 huts for these 500 monks. Uh, 
uh, for them to practice in. And they were also uh, happy to keep the monks' alms bowls bowls filled uh, during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing insight meditation, began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings in the forest, the forest-dwelling devas, uh, devas being beings who have been practicing for maybe many, many years but aren't yet fully awakened, um, and they're not visible uh, uh, for most of us, put it that way. It's said that the unseen beings that were dwelling in this particular forest um, fairly soon became quite fearful of these monks and they began to feel quite uh, put out of their home when they saw that in fact the monks weren't just there for a day or two. They weren't just visiting the forest. They looked like they were really settling in. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and various frightening sights. And it's said that they also emitted very distasteful odors, uh, hoping that this would uh, make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, uh, soon enough, the monks did become quite terrified, which broke their samatha, broke their concentration, their samadhi, and it disrupted their mindfulness considerably. And some of them even developed fever and pain and a kind of dizziness in conjunction with the degree of fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was really impossible to continue to practice where they were in that forest. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their story And the Buddha responded, and he said, My beloved monks, go back to exactly that same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they please not be sent back to that forest again. Again, saying it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, Because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that this, at this point, uh, the Buddha offered the metta. And it's said that this was the first time that the Buddha offered the metta practice comprehensively. Well, out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict uh, his wishes. So armed with the metta teaching and the metta practice, they went back to the forest, that same forest. And for a while, they continued experiencing various degrees of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. And soon there were no more frightening sights and no more frightening sounds and no more distasteful odors. Whereas the devas living there, these unseen beings, had previously been pretty hostile towards the monks, their anger and resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. 
And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the deva's experience, along with a sense of feeling quite connected as though like with family. And the inclination then came up for them to provide an environment of safety, uh, to protect the monks from the particular dangers that lurked in the forest and in this area of Asia, uh, like things like tigers and poisonous snakes and that sort of thing. Um, so that to protect them from this, so that in fact the monks could really practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and their open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it said that all 500 of these monks at some point began practicing samatha and vipassana with metta as their foundation, as their base, this base of kindness and care. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that all of them, as the story goes, every one of them <clears throat> became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, of a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and to connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that brings it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice and throughout the whole of our life. The practice, the energetic experience of metta, it's offered and felt as a very natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself and another particular person and eventually as it goes on to groups of beings as we've begun to explore here these last few days. Wishing oneself and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe, be secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, they they begin to pale. And of course, on a number of levels, they're very important, yes. But within the incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to grow in and flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and care and love, 
Our personal wants, our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of uh, the unconditional human kindness of metta, it's like the sunshine, that warmth of the sun that permeates our inner and our outer sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness, of unconditional friendship, of acceptance, is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being. And then at some point, radiating this quality back out to the world around us. So where does this capacity to connect, uh, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional kindness and acceptance, where does this come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been freely given to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very, very rare. And in fact, all forms of living beings literally cannot survive for very long without some degree of care some degree of kindness being given to them. Every one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us freely, some love given to us, some warmth given to us freely. Or we wouldn't be here. So a very simple, very mundane example in my life recently, just before coming from New Mexico to here to Massachusetts, a day or two before I went into the post office to collect my mail. In Taos they don't deliver mail to the home, so you have to go and pick it up. So I walked towards the post office and someone was coming out of the door and they held the door open for me and smiled. And I smiled back. And there was this warmth that just kind of flowed through me and probably through the other person. I'd never seen them before. We didn't exchange any words. But there was this care, this kindness, offered freely in a very simple way. I did, though, say thank you, actually, as I walked through the door. And she smiled again. And of course, each one of us uh, have experienced kindness with people that we know, uh, people that we're uh, close to, a kindness that's expressed in a more overt uh, and in a stronger way, many times in our life. 
So really this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted uh, in us and these are the seeds that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and we fertilize, that we cultivate through our practice and we water and uh, cultivate it, uh, fertilize it by giving metta to ourselves and then offering it out to others. It's really like a circle. It's really a transmission, we could say. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's really a very essential and beautiful circle. the kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, in some way, their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice. It's a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has, certainly has also an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable, immeasurable capacities, capacities of the heart spring from the other three divine abidings. And those other three divine abidings are compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upeka in Pali. It's also the capacity of mind and heart that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold Uh, and very much uh, our concentration practice as well, very much so, to unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and really important in this practice or in practice overall, patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the whole breadth of the process of freeing the mind, freeing the heart. When I was in China in uh, 1986, I found that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was depicted from two ancient pictographs or symbols. And the top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing. A symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, 
the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards, or we could say we're inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with this metaphor of breath, metta is like the breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty, where from, where to. And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So we could ask the question, well, what is it? (laughs) In the Buddhist texts, it's often spoken of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relation to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of our body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will in relationship to others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning, for instance, no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. Maybe you've done a little comparing since you've been here. That's not metta. (laughs) No comparison and no conceit. No pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. So the, the heart of metta is the absence of ill will in all directions. So as I just mentioned briefly, how often here in retreat, maybe in this retreat, how often might we think of maybe the person sitting next to us? Or maybe somebody sitting all the way on the other side of the room. Uh, Oh, oh, their practice is so much better than mine. Or maybe the comparing mind says, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. I mean, look at how they're wiggling and moving and nodding. I'm really good. I'm great. They're no good. Obviously, again, this is not metta. What are we doing? We're creating a separation. Me and other. And there's a big wall there. The mind and the heart are contracted. The me, the self, looms very large. If we feel and see this uh, clearly, closely, and we see, we know, we feel that it's quite uncomfortable. It's quite unpleasant both the arrogant side and the self-depreciation side, both really uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge without judgment that this too is actually part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, 
is to offer one's self metta and also offer metta to the other person in the equation. And that can be really helpful. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe uh, for some of you surprisingly so, <clears throat> is that metta is actually impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self. What we're identified with and attached to either in a positive way or in a critical way as our self. Our body, our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, our beliefs, our skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not just those we're close to, in our life, those it's maybe easy to care about, or those maybe who might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us. A heart, a mind that's filled, purely filled with metta, holds this possibility of the capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality this capacity to be able to connect with and care for any being, all beings. It takes a lot of practice to get to that, but it's available. And some words from the great Indian teacher uh, Krishnamurti from his meditation journal. He said, meditation is one of the most extraordinary things It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta really has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, with an inner sense of patience and acceptance. So metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. And as you're practicing here in this retreat, in the very specific ways that each of you are, cultivating and strengthening a concentrated clarity of attention for most all of you, some of you, and maybe all of you to some degree now, 
are also working with the practice of metta, at least a little bit. And either directly or maybe attitudinally uh, in relationship to the purifying and healing aspects of an attitude of metta in the heart and in the mind. So it's informing your practice and supporting it and protecting you. With all of this, you're learning that the cultivation of metta aids in the development of our capacity for a very clear and deep concentration. And also it helps towards a very strong focused mindfulness attention. As happened with the group of monks uh, in the story that I shared earlier on in this talk. As our capacity for metta grows and as it blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, hatred, judgment, states of separation, a sense of disconnection. These often strong afflictive energies that move, do move through our heart and our mind and our body, they begin to unwind, to weaken, and eventually to fade. And even maybe eventually to dissolve under the very strong medicine, we could say, of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, and Nisargadatta taught with dialogue, taught through dialogue with his students. So someone once asked him the question, what can make me love? And Nisargadatta's response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and really important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't really necessarily depend on initially liking someone or even approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath what we might not agree with, for instance. Connect with beings who maybe even act in ways that we might not like or even might not condone. It's a connection on a very deep human level. Metta is acceptance on this very deep universal level not necessarily approving. That may not be part of it. There aren't any favorites with metta. No favoring one over the other. So, consequently, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. And as I mentioned earlier, it brings things together. It's goodwill 
eventually and potentially towards all beings, all sentient beings. This, as Gandhi said, most subtle and most powerful force in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it, in fact, is impersonal in nature. That it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So, reflecting for just a moment now, if there was no metta in this world, This world would have flown apart. It would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up until, of course, including this very moment, when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world and periods when the world has been and is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This very powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Mitzker said, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. And then she says, there's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it perfectly, we could say, quite well. He said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, our words, and our actions spring from, if our motivations and our intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond, way beyond our, our own small lives, in ways, in fact, that we may never, ever know. So now I'd like to spend just a few moments <coughs> exploring the expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I do think that um, many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced at all or to look for something that, in fact, maybe we have experienced, but we didn't label it as unconditional loving-kindness. We didn't label it as unconditional friendship, acceptance, metta. 
most certainly sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can kind of get stuck in expecting this. And it's very limiting, that expectation. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within oneself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy, really. There are, for most all of us, many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and Humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, to continue reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings uh, called Sariputta's Lion's Roar that demonstrates this really clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment uh, and wisdom next to the Buddha. And this story takes place uh, just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were uh, beginning to disperse to their various duties and various responsibilities in other places. And this, <clears throat> this is the... Sutta, the story in the Sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One, as the Buddha is often called in the Suttas, was dwelling in Savati at Jetta's Grove in Anattapindika's monastery. And at that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, I have now completed the rain's retreat at Savati. 
and I wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha responded, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, keeping him on his right side, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, the Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, go monk and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, the master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, yes, friend. And then two of the other Buddha's chief disciples, Venerable Mahamogalana and Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverencers, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, one of your fellow monks here has complained that he, you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. <clears throat> the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember he was often called that by his uh, disciples. Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Bhikkhu Rahula was the Buddha's son when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also understood it or learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, the actions of the body in the actions of the body and is not present, may hit well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk hit him, and walk on without apologizing. I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns pure things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, 
Fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell like a heart, like with that a heart with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking might hit a fellow monk, and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean, carries at all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable, Boy or girl, begging vessel in hand, clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. That's the lion's roar. (laughs) And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat. He arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I have committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry and unskillful. I accuse the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded to this monk. Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to the venerable Sariputta, and he said, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha did have a sense of humor. Some people think he didn't, but he did. And then Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him if this reverend monk also asks for my pardon. As I may have been, not been, I may have not been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled.
Now, metta is really one of the best medicines. It's a very powerful medicine. Our human heart <clears throat> is naturally, intuitively loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. We, and we see this in the smallest children often. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me as I was reaching to hand it to her. She took it in her hand and she put it in my mouth with a great big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago, I read a book that was uh, about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. And he grew up on his family's farm in East Texas. Uh, He was the grandson of slaves. And at the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never went to school, he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until at the age of 98 he decided to attend a literacy program. So inspiring. He learned to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. And it's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and how he learned to survive in it. So I'd like to read just a little bit uh, of this book with you. At one point, George is having a a conversation with Richard. Uh, Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together uh, about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So Richard says, you're not really alone. People come and call, uh, come by and call all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. And George responds, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do. But they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them. But they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. And in all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, What goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It makes a person feel better. It's good to be generous. 
It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take the time to say hello. That can, that can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a mind, of a heart, steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue just a little bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, which is about to be Buddha, George Dawson. For much of his life, um, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the porch with her dogs. And George speaking now. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was up there on the shelf for me. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She didn't know any better. Still, She could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being, is what he said to her. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother 
and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry, she couldn't speak. I waited. And finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back here anymore. And I said, that's right. I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped, often very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes through a loving heart, that comes through the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to uh, share one more story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. <clears throat> Sue Ann uh, was born on March 15th in 1974 <clears throat> on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters, on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. And Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, uh, was known to be quite a strict mother, uh, and her daughters always had to be in the house or, uh, or the yard by the time the streetlights went on. And the only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kinds. Uh, unsupervised wanderings and, and then later on cruising around in cars were completely out. So Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize in the ways that most of the kids did outside of school. Chick Big Crow, Sue Ann's mom, was a strongly anti-drug and alcohol and belonging to uh, the small uh, but adamant uh, minority on the reservation that took this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother, on New Year's Eve, when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. And the woman was too distraught to do anything. 
So Sue Ann was the one that called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until uh, other grown-ups arrived. And maybe because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was, and she gave talks and on the subject to school in the, at school and to various youth groups, and actually even made a video urging her message. So a little background about this young woman. Raul Bradford, uh, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach, who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, once uh, was once asked uh, whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. And Raul said, you have to understand, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports, and at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country skiing, running, and track, and volleyball, cheerleading, um, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. So she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio in the back of their house. And her mother and sisters um, getting very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came off uh, the house and then had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their neighbors, Indian neighbors, decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voice, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When the teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When the Pine Ridge is the visiting team, when Pine Ridge, the teams are visitors, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and the fans have a pretty good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, and the host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees, in fact, then will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. And sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams uh, sometimes got harassed was the high school gymnasium in Lead, South Dakota. In the fall of the late 1980s, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Lead to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman and she was 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. And they were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run out onto the court in a line and then take a lap or two around the floor, and then shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside, and and after that the home team would do the same thing. And then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes, 
the team uh, from the that uh, Sue Ann was in, on would line up uh, for their entry uh, uh, more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, who was one of the tallest, went first. And as the, that day, that time, uh, as the team was waiting in the hallway leading from the locker room, uh, the heckling was getting louder. And some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservation receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had actually joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey, who was in the front of the line, looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Well, Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. And she was so eager that uh, Donnie got kind of suspicious. And she said, don't embarrass us. And Donnie, Donnie told Sue Ann. And Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. And on the court, the noise was so loud it was kind of deafening. Sue Ann ran straight down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. And her teammates were taken by surprise and so some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court and faced the lead fans. And she unbuttoned her warm-up jacket and took it and draped it over her shoulders and she began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and show-offy at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalled. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. And Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket and went way up in the air and laid the ball right through the hoop. And the fans were cheering very loudly. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win that game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. And I agree, that was Sue Ann's lion's roar.
in a short poem by Hafiz. It's called The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole world. There's a fullness of energy and confidence. The way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion the real results of practice sometimes come as a surprise. Maybe you encounter a difficult situation and you do what seems to come naturally and then after the fact you realize that actually you handled the situation quite differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a very clearly focused, mindful awareness loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's really no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks how you were able to stay so clearly present and easily do so what, what needed to be done. But it is kind of a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and it changes the lives of everyone you encounter. So I'd like to close the talk (laughs) with a a, a poem. It's um, a valentine that I received a number of years ago from a a student. And it's called This is Love. And it came in the mail, and uh, on it was this small, bright red heart that was sticky on one side so you could peel it off and stick it somewhere else. And this is the poem that came with it. Take this tiny label and stick it on your dining table. Stick it on your favorite book. Stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long-lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. Stick it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Senate floor or... Stick it on the Congress floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.